Isang Bolivinaka, you're listening to Pacific Waves from RNZ Pacific, Ngo Okoroi Hawkins. Coming up... We have uh, an enormous debt to pay for the devastating effects of the 67 nuclear weapons test. Over 100 activists signed a letter to the U.S. president demanding an apology for the Pacific nuclear testing in the Marshall Islands. Also, helping, encouraging one another, healing one another. And that's the whole purpose of uh, commemorations. Tongans are still coming to terms with the catastrophic volcanic eruption one year after the event. And later on, we have four electoral locations, the three villages plus Apia. Tokelauans are heading to the polls this week. Over 100 activist groups, including Greenpeace, Veterans for Peace and the Arms Control Association, have signed a letter calling on U.S. President Joe Biden to apologize for nuclear tests conducted in the Marshall Islands. The letter urges Biden to deliver on promises his administration has made regarding justice for those affected by the tests before the Compact of Free Association with Washington is signed by all parties. So far, Palau and the Marshall Islands have signed memorandums of understanding outlining the frameworks for what will become their third edition of the Compacts of Free Association. The Federated States of Micronesia has not. Susana Suisuiki spoke to one of the signatories of the letter, Daryl Kimball, who is the executive director of Arms Control Association, and began by asking him why he felt it was important to endorse the letter. Well, from our perspective uh, here at the Arms Control Association and with the many organizations uh, who signed this letter, 113, um, it's important to remember uh, the past legacy of U.S. nuclear weapons testing. Um, We feel we have in the United States uh, an enormous uh, debt to pay uh, for the devastating effects of the 67 United States atmospheric nuclear weapons tests in the Marshall Islands. I mean, you know, why can't the issues that's been clearly outlined in the letter be addressed in the Compact of Free Association? I mean, isn't that why the agreement was set up in the first place? Well, these agreements last uh, uh, for a limited period. Um, They're negotiated in a particular point in time. And I think when the first compact was uh, signed in 1986, uh, it was uh, not clear the extent of the, uh, the devastation, uh, the, the extent of the health damage. And quite frankly, um, the United States government did not make uh, the extent of the damage as apparent as it should have. Um, I mean, for many years, what happened... Um, and the investigations were led by the United States government. The United States has not been as forthcoming as it needs to be about uh, the information to declassify a lot of the records that relate. Um, and the, frankly, the Marshallese people um, have, uh, because of the economic hardships provo- uh, created in large part by the history of nuclear testing, you know, they themselves don't have the technical capacity to deal with these issues. And so we see many years later, these issues persisting and uh, new um, uh, efforts need to be taken. Uh, Additional resources need to be provided in order to uh, try to recompense um, uh, for the the damage to, to health and culture and the economy.
Now, Daryl, can you specify the impacts that the nuclear tests have had on the community in Marshall Islands? Well, uh, every one of the islands in, in the Marshalls chain uh, were affected by the nuclear test explosions. Um, the greatest harm was to the northern islands. Um, the nuclear testing has led to serious illnesses over time in parts of the population, radiation poisoning, elevated cancer rates, birth defects, uh, and the contamination of food and water sources continues uh, to this day. One of the islands, uh, Runit Island, uh, where uh, uh, wastes from the past nuclear tests have been buried and uh, somewhat contained by something called a, a dome, uh, that island is completely uninhabitable. Uh, many of the areas uh, in the Marshall Islands are still contaminated, um, and some may not be able to be fully restored. Uh, we have to remember also that you know th these islands are low-lying. Uh, they're being affected by climate change. Um, they're being uh, battered by a number of different uh, forces. Um, so those are some of the so those are some of the impacts that affect. Uh, the Marshallese. And as a result of this, uh, many Marshall Islanders have left the islands. Uh, there's a large diaspora of Marshallese in the United States and elsewhere. Um, and uh, we think um, as experts and organizations that are interested in nuclear disarmament and nuclear justice, that the United States has an important role to play here. And President Biden uh, needs to follow through on the unfulfilled commitments to address these past harms. I mean, there's been so many social and political injustices that's occurred throughout the history of, um, of America. I mean, what difference, in your opinion, what difference will an apology make to the people of um, the Marshall Islands? Well, I don't think any uh, formal apology can, can make up for uh, the lives lost, uh, the damage uh, created, um, but it is one of the, uh, the easiest things uh, that the United States can do. It's the right thing to do. Um, it would recognize the wrongs that were committed and help, uh, I think, teach future generations that you know, these wrongs can never be and should never be created. We can't take for granted the fact that um, through the efforts of millions of people around the world through the years, we finally have brought an end to nuclear test explosions in the atmosphere and even underground. But that taboo against nuclear weapons testing, uh, which is related to the taboo against nuclear weapons use itself, um, is fragile. And uh, every generation needs to do its part. And I think this would help reinforce uh, the norm uh, the taboo against uh, nuclear test explosions. Last week, Tongans commemorated the first year anniversary of the Hunga Tonga Hunga Haapai volcanic eruption. According to NASA, the explosion was 500 times more powerful than the atomic bomb that destroyed Hiroshima. Remarkably, only three people were killed by the volcanic eruption in Tonga, but despite the low casualty rate, Finau Fonua found many in the kingdom are still haunted by the traumatic event. 
On January 15th, Tongans attended churches across the kingdom to pray and to sing hymns of thanksgiving. It marked the year since the Hunga Tonga Hunga Hapai volcanic eruption, a traumatic event that is still vividly remembered. We heard this massive, just like this, you know, the sound. It kept going on and on, and, it, and then I suddenly see everyone panicking and running. There was a lot of panic. Uh, people were driving like crazy. Well, most of us were running, <laughs> running to higher grounds. I could hear people praying to the Lord for help. All of a sudden, the whole sky was black. And it was like pitch black. Three people were killed in Tonga by the disaster, a miraculously low number according to disaster experts, considering the destruction and sheer power of the eruption. The explosion generated a 58-kilometer plume that NASA scientists say was so high it penetrated the third layer of Earth's atmosphere. The destruction left many homeless, and the tiny islands of Atata and Mango were permanently evacuated to other islands in Tonga. One evacuee from Mango Island, Patiola Tutoila, whose father was killed in the eruption, says the evacuation was the final straw for the people of Mango, as their island had already been severely damaged by two cyclones in the years leading up. The truth is we lived in Mango our whole lives. It was our home and we loved it there. But when the tsunami hit, God knows we were all begging and praying to leave. From children to our elders, we were all set on the idea of leaving Mango permanently. I recall when the boat came to take us off the island. We were asked if we wanted to stay or leave. Everyone wanted to leave. We felt our island is so vulnerable, therefore we can't risk our lives. It's a sentiment shared by the over 70 former residents of Atata, who lost most of their homes to the tsunami waves. They now live in a newly built housing project on the main island of Tongatapu. Village elder Goli Falao says the move has been difficult for many, as they lived a subsistence lifestyle on Atata and must now adapt to their new commercialized environment. It is true that we've faced challenges since coming to live in our new home. Life on Atata was definitely easier. We didn't have to pay for certain things like electricity bills or water bills, but now we have to work harder to afford paying for these things. Our people have only relied on the ocean to provide for our families. We're fishermen, and now we have to learn to adapt and to cope with the mainland way of living. Since 2014, the kingdom has endured three tropical cyclones, two of which were Category 5 super cyclones. The latest disaster has also prompted many other Tongan communities and coastal villages to move. Sione Uta'atu, a long-term resident of Kanukupolu, one of the villages worst hit by the tsunami, says his village is vulnerable to flooding because it is so low-lying. Myself, um, the very first thing that came to mind was migrating overseas. But then my parents don't want to leave. The, they, they, you know, they have their parents buried here. So, but for me, I, I'd rather uh, go somewhere and live. I don't think anyone wants to continue and live here for, for, the, for the long run. In spite of the challenges, Tongans remain optimistic and many are grateful for having survived a disaster that many scientists believed should have caused more fatalities. Helping, encouraging one another, 
healing one another. And that's the whole purpose of uh, commemorations. Whatever happens, happens, you know, like just make sure you're spending time with family, make sure you're like appreciating everyone. People are resilient. This is not their first disaster. They have seen uh, Category 4 or 5 hurricanes. And, and a lot of people here in Tonga, they have a, a lot of uh, faith, faith in God. And I'm sure that provides a lot of reassurance to a lot of people. It's election week in Tokelau, as Lydia Lewis reports. For the first time in Tokelau's history, all three atolls will take part in the same electoral process. Previously, Nukunonu did not take part due to concerns around candidates not being able to put their hand up for multiple roles. But the rule has been changed, allowing Nukunonu candidates to run for more than one post. Voting day has been set down for January 26 local time. The roles up for grabs include Faipule or Cabinet Minister, of which there is one for each atoll. There is also a Pulenuku or Mayor for each atoll. And Tokelauans will also vote for a Fafine or Women's Group member, a Taulelea or a Men's Group member and for General Fono delegates. Lydia Lewis spoke with the general manager of the office of Tokelau, Tino Vitale, about the 2023 national election process. Since 2013, there was the first law put in place to try and unify the systems we use for the elections. And the first election that came under that arrangement was the 2014. Interesting. Because we always allow Taupulenga flexibility to determine a system that, it's, yeah, that they feel confident with, Nukunonu has not participated in the new system. So each year that there's an election, we've always amended the rule to try and satisfy the requirements of each village. Fortunately for us, Nukunonu has agreed uh, to abide with the new system, and we have also changed the rule to allow Nukunonu's candidates to go for more than one uh, post. So each village has uh, been respected to make their own decision on candidates, uh, and each village will then put out those names for the chief electoral officer to then devise the system or the voting papers so that the committees on each village can work towards. So in each village, uh, they have their own committees uh, who will run the election at each village um, the day. With the public servants in Apia uh, also being included, that means that we have four uh, electoral locations, the three villages plus Apia. Um, And the system uh, is managed by local uh, committees uh, on the day who will do, uh, well, the registration has already started, so that's closing next week. Uh, Normally, we try to get 100% uh, participation or registration. Uh, so all those uh, who are eligible uh, will be registered. Next week, each Taupulenga will sit down 
uh, and decide on their candidates. Normally, the procedure is that we elect the five pule first, then once that is concluded, we elect the pule nuku, and then we elect members of parliament or members of the general fono, which includes representatives from uh, the women's group as well as the able men's group. And just to confirm, is this the first time Nukunono has participated in this election process? This is the first time that Nukunono has participated under, new, under this arrangement. Adafu and Fakaofo have been participating um, since 2014 election. And what does this mean? How was that decision reached? What they're saying is that in the in the system that was used, um, that you just named who you wanted to go for the Faipule role and who you want to go for the Pulenuku role and then for the representative of the general fono. Uh, for example, the, the Taupulenga members, uh, the able men or Aumanga members, the Fatupaipai members or the women, uh, so Nukunonu felt uh, that because of the competition where you will not get the people to actually count for the Pulenuku, uh, it sort of depletes their, their, well, their, probably their, their best candidates by dropping out in the first lot of elections. So the new rule now allows those people can actually go for the Fapule, they can also go for the Pulenuku, and they can also go as representative of the Taupulenga in making up the numbers for the candidates. There has been criticism of the Papua New Guinea Parliament's decision to give Sir Bob Dadai a second term as Governor-General. There had been hopes that a prominent woman candidate, Winnie Kiap, might have been chosen. Ms. Kiap had had a long and distinguished career as a diplomat. Typically in Papua New Guinea, Governors-General do have a second term, but our correspondent in PNG, Scott Waide, told Don Wiseman the lack of female representation in leadership positions throughout the country sparked hope of a woman being appointed to this preeminent role for the first time. I guess they wanted a change in in the governor general's position, and you know some progression towards gender equality in that in that particular post. I mean, if many people aren't getting that equality in in politics, at least they wanted something of uh, a representation in in the governor general's post, and that didn't happen because the candidate uh, Winnie Kiap, who's a you know exceptional public servant, very good track record, wasn't considered. I mean. There were 33 votes for it, which was a considerable number considering the fact that no woman has been elected into that. But still 71 people voted against her uh, and voted for Sir Bob. Uh, and that's irritated a lot of Papua New Guineans who felt that uh, it, it could have gone to uh, Winnie Kiap, uh, but didn't. Tell me about the people uh, who are upset. They are uh, a, a general cross-section of uh, Papua New Guineans uh, from all over the country. 
checking Facebook and, and social media sites, a lot of them want at least some representation of change and progress. And they're saying, you know, why give a former politician a second chance? He's already had his turn. There, there should be change. And they're criticizing the government and, and parliamentarians for not being brave enough to make that choice. The prime minister's come out and said... Uh, Sir Bob has remained because it's good for stability and continuity. Uh, A lot of Papua New Guineans aren't buying that. It is always the case, or certainly in recent times, isn't it, that the the Governor-General does typically get two terms? Yes, that's happened in the last few terms of uh, previous Governor-General. But for for this one, I guess people were expecting, had high expectations of a, a different person taking over from Sir Bob, and that didn't happen. Has there ever been any debate in PNG about how the Governor-General is selected? I mean, is it seen as the appropriate forum for Parliament to just select the uh, Governor-General? Yes, there's been a lot of debate every time this post comes up for election. uh, There's there's always been this debate whether it's appropriate for Parliament to appoint someone uh, because the Governor-General's position is key when it comes to the formation of the new government and and that's always been the case in 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 after the election so it's always a position that politicians want to have an influence over or at least have some say over it and uh, it, it, there's always this clash between the public wanting some sort of change even though it hasn't been defined clearly defined by uh the parties and there's already an existing system so when it comes to uh, the election of the Governor-General, the people express an opinion, but uh, a system's already there, and we, we tend to follow this and then have this same kind of debate over and over again. That's Specific Waves for today. Remember, you can download us for free to your device from Spotify, iHeart, or Apple Podcasts. And if you're using Apple, please leave us a rating so others can also find us. Modemada. <laughs>